Um, good morning. We're really glad that you guys are here. Really glad that we're continuing this series of Forward. And if you tracked with us at all throughout the course of the entire summer, you know that we spent the month of May going through the first um, eight chapters of the book of Acts, really dialing into the early church. And the central figure, of course, at that point still would have been Peter. Um, James would have been in there. Stephen came in the mix. But then we were introduced to a character we knew, Saul, who was miraculously transformed in Acts chapter 9. And and we know him as the Apostle Paul, writer of half of the New Testament. And so we tracked with him for the remainder of summer, going through the book of Acts on his missionary journeys and understanding how the church was built and how it took shape. Well, we get to stick with Paul uh, because now we're diving into one of the letters that he wrote. And so from a Roman prison towards the end of his ministry and the end of his life, Paul writes a letter to a church in a town called Philippi about what it means to be long completely to Jesus. And he encourages these people for their willingness to suffer, their willingness to endure hardship, their willingness to to travel and do difficult things. Now, anybody here who's had any sort of devotional life um, throughout uh, your experience of following Jesus, if you've had any sort of devotional life over the past, I don't know, one month to um, 21 years, you have likely checked out some sort of Bible reading plan. Some sort of like daily Bible reading plan or daily Bible devotional where you opened up a book and it told you to read a few verses and then there was some commentary and some illustrations and some application points to help you take this ancient word that was written thousands of years ago and apply it to what is a very modern day life. And some of those Bible reading plans could be like whole chapters and whole sections and some of those Bible reading plans dial it into just one verse. And we're taught to meditate on the word of God and to really take in a verse. We're even taught to memorize the Word of God so that it can be fresh on our minds and fresh on our hearts and fresh on our fingertips as we respond to everyday situations and everyday life. But these books in particular, towards the end of the New Testament, we can't just approach them like the Psalms, these great poetic sayings. We can't just approach them like the Proverbs, these one-liner pieces of wisdom. They're letters, personal letters written from a guy far away, like it's, it's getting an email on a Tuesday morning. And I, it's my birthday this week. I just celebrated it, actually. Don't celebrate with me. It's not a big deal. It's not divisible by five. And at my age, only birthdays that count are divisible by five, so we won't even mention it. But I say this to say, I got some birthday cards in the mail. And one in particular that I look forward to every year is the one from my grandfather, still living, and so he sends me a birthday card. I look forward to it because I'm not going to lie, I'm 42 years old now and there's still $50 inside. Let's just be excited. But there's also a really nice letter. So yesterday, I read the first line of that letter. Today, I come back and I read the second line of that letter. Tomorrow, I'll read the third line of that letter. By the time Thanksgiving hits, I would have completed the entire letter that my grandfather wrote me. No, you don't read a letter like that. You read it in its entirety. You don't read an email like that. You don't get an email and say, oh, this is a long one. I'm going to parse this out over the next three weeks and read just one or two lines at a time. When you get a letter, you read the whole thing. 
And that's how these books of the Bible were written, and that's the intent that they were given, and that's how they were ultimately read. The early church would gather together in a home or an assembly ground or maybe even outside, and somebody would say, guys, we just got a letter from Paul. Spread the word. We're going to read it tomorrow at noon. And so everybody would gather around together, and they would literally read the entire thing. And then somebody in the back might go, encore, read that thing again. And they would read it in its entirety and understand the entire context of the letter that Paul wrote. When you, when you read these words one verse at a time, you get the incredible impact of these verses one at a time. But you don't want to miss the gist of this incredible letter that Paul was writing to a church to help them understand the context of what it means to follow Jesus. Now, we're not going to read all of Philippians this morning, but we are reading the whole thing, tracking across it throughout the month of uh, August leading into September. But I encourage you this week, um, one, two, three, four, five times, maybe once a day, um, to go back to the book of Philippians and start in chapter one that we covered last week and read all the way through the end of chapter four that we'll cover in a couple of weeks. Read the whole thing and digest it as a letter the way that it was intended. That will have a completely different impact on the way you view this passage of Scripture and the way that we engage in this word. Today we are going to dive into um, the start of chapter 2 and only go through the first 11 verses. And arguably, these are some of the most significant verses penned in all of the New Testament as they describe to us not only what Jesus did, but also who he calls us to be. And so right at the beginning, we're just going to read all of those words together, starting in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. It says, therefore, now Pastor Jeff in Franklin Campus, he always says this, and I love it. He says, anytime you see the word therefore, you have to ask, what's it there for? See what I did there? <laughs> anytime you see the word therefore in Scripture, you have to ask, well, what's it there for? Like everything that we're about to read in this first sentence is in response to what we just read at the end of chapter one. So Paul's describing to them, what does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel that you've received? Not that you could ever earn Jesus and his sacrifice for you, but what does it mean to live in light of what he did for you? He says this, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, and let me just raise my hand, and maybe you want to raise yours too, I need some encouragement. I also need some comfort as evidenced by the fact that I am filling my belly full of Southern food every chance I get during all of COVID-19. I need some comfort. I need some encouragement. So scripture says, therefore, in response to living a life worthy of the gospel, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. I didn't even need to go to scripture for that. I learned it on Facebook not. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, this is the NIV 2011, the NIV 1984 doesn't say in your relationships with one another, but I like the idea that says in this context, in this horizontal life that we live, because of what Jesus has done for us, this vertical relationship that we have with God the Father, it should affect everything that we do horizontally on this planet as we look out towards other people. So in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. 
who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you pray with me? Holy God, we thank you for the reading and the hearing of this incredible, important word and the opportunity to sit in a space with other people where we might actively be called and actively learn and actively pursue what it means to make this word a primary feature in our lives so that we can be the living everyday embodiment of it. So that, God, we might be a people who are so called according to your name and your pleasure that when other people, having never read Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, when other people, have, having never heard of a guy named Paul who wrote a letter to a people in Philippi from a Roman jail cell, when other people who might have never experienced these specific words, they can look at our lives and see it in plain view. Having never read about Jesus, having never heard about Jesus, God, our goal is that through their interactions with us and through their experience with us, they might know exactly who he is and what he's about. May that be true of your people, God. It's in your holy and precious, perfect name that we pray. Amen. I believe that this passage of Scripture gives us a little bit of a prescription. You know, you can drive up to the CVS and sit in your car and somebody bring you medicine. Well, this passage of Scripture, you can sit in your seat, mask on your face, open up your Bible. God's going to give us a prescription for what we might do to ready and to what we might do to better ourselves. And it's, it's in its essence, it's called an if-then faith. Well, what, is it, what does it mean to have an if-then faith? We read about it in this passage of Scripture. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement, if it's encouraging to you that Christ might want to be in a relationship with you, if it's comforting to you that God on high loves you, if there's any sort of common bond that you feel with the power of the Holy Spirit, then, like an if-then faith, and you can evaluate that from the perspective of what we do if we believe this to be true. You see, if we believe that God is good, then we can respond in faith. If we really believe that God is good, we can respond to him in faith even when the world around us doesn't feel that good. Even when the world around us doesn't feel that good because we know somehow that God is working together all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And if we really believe that God is good, then we can respond in faith. If we really believe that God can be trusted no matter what, then we can walk in daily obedience, submitting ourselves to this word. God, I will do what you say in this word because I trust you. I will do what you say in this word because I trust you even when I don't understand you. If I really believe that God can be trusted, then I can walk in obedience. If I really believe that God truly loves me, then that means that all of my value will be in him. 
That means that I can confidently declare his gospel even when it's going to cost me something. If it's going to cost me friends, if it's going to cost me notoriety, if it's going to cost me a place in my community, if it's going to cost me a place in my own family, I can still confidently declare his gospel because I know that God loves me and I'll never lose my place in him. If I really believe that God loves me, then I can confidently declare his gospel. If I believe that God sees me and he hears me, that means I can weather any difficult season that comes my way. Because even when I feel scared and even when I feel alone, I know that there's a God who hears and sees me. If then faith if there is encouragement, if there is comfort, if there is love, if there is tenderness, if there is compassion, if any of this is really true, that I can be a person who responds in faith. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean? Well, Scripture gives us the answer. It says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any compassion sharing the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then Paul says, make my joy complete by what? By being like-minded, having the same love, being of one spirit and of one mind. What does it mean to be like-minded? The New American Standard Version of that same verse says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in the same spirit, intent on one purpose. So it means that as believers in Jesus Christ, if this is true and if God is really good, if this is true and we enjoy the fellowship of following Jesus Christ, then we are to be of the exact same heart, the exact same soul, and the exact same mind, intent on what Scripture calls one purpose. That, that word one in Scripture is haste. Jesus said this when he was praying. It's written down for us in John chapter 17. He prayed these words. The, he prayed for the glory to which God had given him, he gave to us. That he took the glory that God gave him and gave it to us that we, us today, may be one just as God the Father and Christ the Son are one. Of one heart, of one soul of one mind, of one common purpose as a people. And you look out over the landscape of the world that we live in, you look out of the landscape of the city that we live in, there's not a whole lot of oneness out there. We as believers are called to, to set that pace. You look at the life of the church, you look at the life of Christians, you look at the life of people who all claim to follow Christ, there's not a lot of oneness out there either. I mean, there's not a lot of oneness in here then there's definitely not going to be a lot of oneness out there. When there's not a lot of oneness out there, there's a lot of missing opportunities for people to see and know and follow that God is good, that he can be trusted, that he loves us, that he hears us. It's our oneness that's going to tell other people that. When we behave towards one another with the attitude of Christ in our relationships with one another, when we live out that spirit of unity, it communicates to the world around us. Jesus is good. Jesus can be trusted. Jesus loves us. Jesus hears us. And there's a lot of metrics in our lives. There's, there's a lot of metrics in our lives. Like we look at the number on the scale to determine how well we're doing in one direction or the other. 
We look at uh, the, the, the number on the edge of a barbell to see how we're doing one way or another. We zip into a bank account online and look at how we're doing to determine what our measurement is in one way or the other. We look at a lot of different metrics in life. How do we metric out the idea of what it means to have the attitude of Jesus? What does it really mean to be of one mind? Well, Scripture tells us that too. If we're going to have compassion, if we're going to have encouragement, if we're going to have tenderness, if we're going to have love from being united in Christ, then we're going to make Paul's joy complete by having that same mind. Well, how do we do that? This is how we do it. We live like Jesus. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. We have a lot of metrics. We have a lot of values. We have a lot of systems to tell us how we're doing in life. Well, what about the system that would tell us how we're doing with the mindset of Christ? Are we really of the one mind, the one heart, the one soul with what the temperament of Scripture says and what the bond of believers should be? My one really unknown contribution to the world of parenting um, as we attempt to raise three kids came before we ever had any of those kids. Working in student ministry with middle school, high school kids, I figured out that the best way to be a good influence on middle school, high school kids was to also have some sort of influence and leverage over parents in the home. And how was I, as a young 20-something youth pastor, going to walk alongside a mom or dad who was raising teenagers because they had been doing it a lot longer than I, and they were, quite frankly, a lot older than I. So what sort of emphasis can I make? And God gave me a word early in student ministry. It was the idea of volume. And volume, obviously, is loud. And student ministry with middle school, high schoolers is always loud now as parents. My wife and I were raising two middle schoolers, and they will soon be high schoolers. There's a younger brother bringing up the rear. But we're, we're understanding just the, the volume that can come with having a house full of kids. But volume isn't just the word that we use for how loud something is. Volume is also the word we use for how much of something is in it. You see, volume isn't just how loud it is. Volume is also how much liquid is in this container. Judging by how much coffee I drink, not very much at this moment. This is a, I think this will hold like 12 ounces, which is really, really good. Volume is how loud something is, but volume is also how much of something is in it. If my little boy Simon was getting ready to cross the street and it was a busy road like Harding that runs across I-65, if he was literally on a bike ride with us and he wasn't going to stop at the stop sign or stop at the stoplight on Danby and was going to barrel across that street, I wouldn't say to him, hey, Simon, back up, bud. It would be an all-out angry dad scream, Simon, stop! I mean, like, what in the world? My volume would communicate my value in that moment. Volume also communicates value because it's not just how loudly you say something, it's how much you say something. As moms and dads in different circles of life, it is so easy to ask your kids every day if they finish their math homework, every day if they made their, I'm the bed making police at our house, full on admission if they clean their room? Did you finish your carrots? Did you take out the dog? It's easy to be the parent whose volume speaks value over cleanliness and education and kindness. But could our kids easily see by the volume, not just how loudly we say it, but how often we say it, 
What are you praying about? What is scripture telling you? What are you asking God? What are you learning in your Bible study? We want to be a people whose volume, not just how loudly we say it, you don't have to go very far in terms of how loud people are than social media. People can be loud about the things that they're saying. And they can include a lot of volume about the things that they're saying. They say it often. Our volume communicates our values. It's not just how loudly we say something. It's how often we say it. And I want the volume of my life to speak the value of Christ. And the way to do that is by seeking the interest of others and not myself. In fact, this word interest that we read in our English Bibles, the idea of not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others, is really just a filler word, not present in the Greek text. Really just to help us understand. Basically, the Greek text for us says, not looking to your own fill-in-the-blank, but each of you to the fill-in-the-blank of others. Which means that you could substitute in there, not looking to your own financial affairs, but ultimately to the financial affairs of others. Not looking to your own health first, but to the health of others. Not looking to your own reputation, to your own education, to your own success, to your own happiness, to your own property, to your own family, but ultimately to the family and the success and the property and the health and the well-being and the education and the ideas of others. If we want to make Paul's joy complete, if we want to really have this mind, then ultimately we'll care a lot less about our own fill-in-the-blanks and a whole lot more about other people's fill-in-the-blanks. And so we get this really incredible example in the life of Jesus, whose pattern, the pattern of Jesus, like the way that he lived his life, was to ultimately be willingly humbled. Present from the very beginning, at creation, ordering things in place, making the world that he would one day come and dwell in, determined that his own equality and his own supremacy with God was not something to cling so tightly to that he wasn't willing to let go of all of that value and step into a place of humility where he could be human like us. The essence of Emmanuel, God with us, the essence of the gospel story is wrapped up in the fact that Christ would willingly come down to us, taking on the very nature of a servant, making himself nothing, being made in human likeness, found in the appearance of man, humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. A cross is a criminal's death. A cross is a disgraceful way to die. A cross was the worst kind of public execution physically and emotionally. Romans would line the streets with crosses of criminals literally dying to their death, slowly asphyxiating because they couldn't get enough energy from their legs nailed to a tree to push themselves up and to rear their shoulders back in order to take a deep breath. And so basically it wasn't the loss of blood. It wasn't the beating. It wasn't the pain. It wasn't the execute. It was literally not being able to catch your breath that killed you. And they would line public streets with crosses to send Two encouraging messages. One, if you break our Roman law, we will do this to you. But it was also the final nail in the coffin of every single one of those mostly men who were killed because you had to watch people go by. And oh, the shame and oh, the disgrace to watch people go by 
mock you, that was their culture, spit at you, make fun of you, and pronounce you guilty yet again for whatever it was crime that you committed. The cross was a wretched way to go, and we romanticize it. We do. Like, we've done that since the adoption of Christianity as the public religion in Rome. Like, we've adopted little gold crosses that we wear on our neck and gold crosses that we paint on pictures and stained glass, and we hang them in churches and in our homes. We have one. You might do the same. Like, we romanticize the cross, but in its essence, the cross is not romantic. The cross is fully barbaric. You and I are the ones that deserved it, and Christ willingly in endured it. Certainly that was out of great love, but it's not a pretty picture. This is the kind of humility that he was willing to endure. Our discipleship pastor for Rolling Hills, his name is Jacob, and and he taught this word. He said, humility ultimately brings you low, but that's where you have to be in order to wash somebody else's feet. Humility brings you low. But that's where you got to be to wash someone else's feet. And Christ said it for us. It's in Luke chapter 22. He utters these words. He says, who is greater? The, the, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? Who is greater? The one who reclines by the table or the ones who serve those at it? It wasn't rhetorical. He gave them the answer. It is not the one who's at the table. He said, I among you am here as one who serves. The pattern of Jesus' life was to be willingly humbled so that he could be gloriously exalted. Because it was ultimately God the Father who exalted him to the highest place in verse 9 and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, we don't follow this great moralistic teacher who taught us good things about how to treat one another. We don't follow this revolutionary leader who did incredible things to change the world that he lived in. We don't follow some good person. We follow a living Messiah That's why we say that the essence of discipleship is someone, a a disciple is someone who is a follower of Jesus. And we add Christ onto the end because we want to make sure that we say to people, we're not just following Jesus who was some great historic figure. We're following a Christ, a risen Messiah, God in flesh, who came to earth to die on a cross to save people who were so fallen and so far wretched away from God, deserving the death themselves, but he died in our place so that we might have a relationship with him. And one day, one day in the I don't know how distant future, every single knee will ultimately bow and every single tongue will ultimately confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The question is whether or not we will willingly do that in this life in order to enjoy him in the next or if we will wait until it's far too late. Every other religion on the planet, every other way of life on the planet is all about the things that you do, the things that you say, the places that you go, the directions that you face, the lives that you live, the rules that you obey, and all about attaining some sort of unattainable right to a faith. All about the things that you do. This one alone is about the thing that's already been done. 
everything that is necessary for you and I to have forgiveness, everything that's necessary for us to have a relationship with our creator, everything that's necessary for us to enjoy encouragement and compassion and tenderness and love, everything that's necessary for us to make Paul's joy complete, everything that's necessary for us to be of one mind, of one heart, of one soul, of a like purpose, everything that's necessary for us to enjoy this fruitful fulfillment of life has already been accomplished. And so we declare that Jesus Christ alone is the name that is above every other name. We willingly bow down and confess it and profess it to others so that they might know and understand that God is good. I've been watching these videos online. Maybe you have too. I've posted about them. Other people, you just see them all over the place. It's um, this series of videos from a guy named Emmanuel Acho called um, Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. And I'll just confess to you guys, this is a, this is a completely comfortable, because I don't care what you think, conversation with a white dude. I don't know anything about sports. I don't know anything about sports figures. I don't know like what he played or where he played it or why it was a big deal. But I discovered him through this series of conversations that we've been having in life. Emmanuel Acho has posted uncomfortable conversations with the black man, and he's interviewed a lot of different people, and I was turned on to different ones, like the, the fixer-upper Chip and Joanna Gaines people were on there, um, lots of other folks have been on there, and I watched most recently the last one, and it was a conversation with Carl Lentz, who's the pastor of Hillsong Church in New York City, and it's a massive church, and you sing a lot of Hillsong songs, and if you ever listen to Christian radio, you definitely have heard Hillsong songs. We might have even sung one this morning. I don't know who writes these songs, but we could have. Who knows? But Carl Lentz is the pastor there, and they were having a conversation about racism in the life of the church, why it exists, why it's real, and and what it is that we should do about it, and why largely throughout the last at least 50 years, church leaders have been hesitant to engage the conversation with any kind of productivity And so they keep having this conversation, and they keep going. It's about 19 minutes long, and you can watch it. But it gets to the point where they begin dialoguing about white privilege. Manuel Acho, he's a black man. Carl Lentz, he's a white dude, a pastor. And they start having this conversation about the idea of white privilege. And it's not what you think about that today that matters. But but Carl Lentz had this geometric proof of a conversation in his mind going from one point to the other that just made so much sense to me. He shares like on the spot, hey, I have conversations. I need you to know I have conversations with people who do not believe that this is a thing. And part of the conversation that he's willing to have with, with other people, who white people, who don't believe that this is a thing, is this. He will look at them and say, okay, so say I'm wrong about the idea of white privilege. I believe that it's a real thing. And so because I believe that it's a real thing, I'm moving my life in this direction. But say one day we find out that I'm wrong and that it's not real. Basically, here's what he says. I would have lived my whole life looking out for other people, making sure that someone else got the first shot and I got the second. Making sure that people who were not in the mix got to be in the mix. And then at the end of it all, I lived my life that way and I found out I was wrong. Okay, what did I lose? But if you... Live your life and find out you were wrong 
that you didn't believe that this white privilege was real and that you didn't acknowledge it, that means you've been stepping on the necks, his words, not mine, you've been stepping on the necks of other people your entire life. And then he says these words, not in the Bible, just Carl Lentz, pastor in New York City. My wrong is better than your wrong. And the problem with so many of the arguments that we have today is that neither side is willing to admit any level of wrongness. And the truth of the matter is, at the end of the day, we're both ultimately really, really wrong. And it's only when we adopt that posture of humility and recognizing the fact that I could be wrong about this, but I'm going to err on the side of Christ-likeness. I think you could take his same conversation and have it about masks. I have gone back and forth in my mind and in my own internal politics about what this means and what it represents. And I think you could fill in the same conversation. One day, we may find out that this was not only wrong but stupid, right? Like one day, our children's children may grow up, one day the sweet little babies that are in this room, one day they may grow up and they may look at their aging parents and say, Mom, how come in that picture your hair looked that way and you were wearing a mask, right? Because that'll happen, right? And we'll have to explain what this was about. Well, we could be wrong. Science could one day prove that this was not only unhelpful but also unnecessary. And some of you may believe that, and that's okay. But I put it on, and I wear it when I go places, and I wear it when I engage people, because somehow I believe that one day, even if I was wrong, my goal was the care and the safety of others. One day, somebody over here who never cared enough to wear one may find out that they were wrong, and they harmed a lot of other people in their pride. I'm just going to let one wrong, for whatever reason, be better than the other wrong. I think we can almost take that same conversation and say it about this too. What if one day, what if one day we were to find out that this was wrong, that this, this gospel story wasn't true? then that means that those of us who've ascribed to Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior have lived their entire lives attempting to love others first, to put others first, to always go second, to live life according to the, the, the truth and the conviction that comes along with this word. I'm okay with that but, but what about the people out there who have refused to believe this word? Will they be okay with that wrong in their life? You see, if this is true, if this is true, then those of us who have believed it are saved and safe. If this is right, then those of us who believe it are called and sent if this is right, then that means that those who never heard it are lost and doomed. If this is right, then those who refused to believe it, they have the same fate. 
Christ did the best job making God known by becoming less. How do we do the best job making Christ known? Same way. John said, the the apostle, the the gospel writer John in chapter 3, he said, he must increase, I must decrease. And the best way to make Christ increase is by focusing on the increase of other people. Best way to move forward in my faith is to move backward in my selfishness. The best way to move forward in Christ-likeness is to move backward in worldliness. The best way to move forward in this is to move down in my opinion of myself and my ability to handle this life on my own. The best way to be exalted, to spend eternity with him, is by willingly believing and being humbled by the fact that he would die in our place. It's the essence of our salvation, and it's the essence of what we believe. And I, I dare somebody to try it. Somebody who's on the fence of faith, I, I dare somebody to give this a try for whatever we call it, 21 days, 40 days, a year. There was a pastor that did that once. He called people, he said, you go through the motions. You give one year of your life. You may live till you're 80-something years old. You give one solid year of your life to reading this every day and attempting to follow this. And at the end of that year, if your life hasn't been completely transformed by the love relationship that you found with Jesus, then by all means, go your own way. The pastor was pretty confident that the alternative would have happened. And not even one, two, three months in, those people would have been completely completely so wrecked by the love of Jesus Christ that they wanted nothing more than to follow him with everything that they had. And that's our goal as a church, to represent this so well that people get to see Christ even if they've never read about him. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the chance to, to be a part of this church and to open up this word and to listen to what it says and to hopefully seek to apply it to our lives. And God, We know that at the end of this life, we're going to be wrong about a whole lot of things. And what we also know is that at the end of this life, we want to be right about the only things that matter. And so, Father, we pray that in your holy perfection, you would call us to be your representatives and equip us to do the same. And that somehow by your faith and by your favor, that we would represent you well enough so that other people see you and desire to know you too. We all have such strong opinions, God, about so many different things. And at the end of it all, we just want to be shaped by whatever your truth is. And so help us to recognize fully who you are and who you've called us to be. Shave away the parts of us that are prideful and arrogant and replace it with your humility. Make us a people who are willing to do whatever it takes to serve someone else who are willing to do whatever it takes to show someone else your love. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.